it is such a, a thrill to see these people in one hour go from total terror. We've actually had people pass out in the room from fear <laughs> wow. to total confidence uh, that they could do this if they had to. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. Hey everyone, it's Blake Fletcher. Quick note before I tell you about today's episode. Wanted to let you all know that you probably saw today, or maybe you didn't, that there's only about 10 episodes in the half hour intern feed right now. That's because I actually created a separate second podcast for all of the year one content. Because of the way that my host setup is for my podcast, they can only feed 100 episodes at once to any given feed. So I had to basically create a second feed, a second podcast in order for all the episodes to be out there for the public. So the first 100 episodes of Half Hour Intern are all on the Half Hour Intern Year One podcast feed. And then anything after episode 100 is going to be in this new feed. And in years forward, I'll probably create a year two, a year three. I don't know. We'll see what happens going forward. Anyways, there's a separate year one feed now. I would really, really, really appreciate it if um, if you guys could find it in your heart to go over and search for and subscribe to the year one feed. And if you could leave a review, that would be like the nicest, most awesome thing ever. And maybe like mention what a favorite episode of yours was or something like that. Hopefully there'll be lots of new people listening to the show and listening to that first year so you can steer someone in the right direction towards an episode that you really liked. So on to today's episode, as you saw in the title, today's episode is about being a standardized patient, which I knew nothing about before this. And it like blew my mind that I didn't know about this. And it's so crazy that this is a thing and great that this is a thing. So a standardized patient is someone who role plays for doctors and nurses that are in medical school to basically help them become better doctors and nurses. So it's someone like you or me that would act like we had some sort of disease and the doctor comes in the room and you just role play like you're the person with whatever disease or condition it was that they told you that you were going to role play that you're going to have. And you both try to help the doctor diagnose what is wrong with you. And you also have to um, judge the doctor on kind of how their bedside manner was and if they were polite and all these other things. And he also goes into that they even go so far as to do invasive procedures as standardized patients. Um, it's like a whole different type of standardized patient that you can sign up to be, um, but they will do like prostate exams on men. They will do really invasive procedures on women. So uh, it gets pretty crazy, the stuff that these standardized patients do. So anyways, Errol will tell us all about that. So without further ado, here is standardized patient. Errol, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, Blake, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. So I think off the bat, I would like to say that I used to work in the medical field and I have never heard of a standardized patient before. Like, how is that even possible that I haven't heard of this being a thing? I, I don't know. It's It's been around and it's been very uh, popular since about 2004. Um, it started way back in 1984 in a one-shot deal out at USC, University of Southern California. They decided to do <clears> – <throat> excuse my voice. I'm fighting allergies. Uh, they decided to do a case uh, 
portraying a paraplegic MS uh, patient. And uh, supposedly that went very well, and they did the documentation on it, but it just was a one-shot deal. Um, about nine years later, they decided to do it at University of Arizona uh, with parents uh, and imaginary babies. And so the students came in and saw a parent, and the parent would portray and talk about something wrong with their child, and they would have to come up with the diagnosis and plan. And uh, then it was a huge gap before they really started using it in um, in medical schools, for mainly for residents. And then finally, it evolved into Canada, started doing it on a regular basis for their licensing programs. Uh, following that, the U.S. started doing it for foreign doctors who were coming in to relicense. And in 2004, uh, the U.S. MLC, the Uni- uh, United States Medical Licensing Exam, made it a part of their uh, assessment. So when someone leaves medical school and they have to do this big final exam, they go through seeing 12 patients in a day uh, for about 15 minutes each, each one with a different uh, complaint. And between times, they have to come out and write up an assessment called a SOAP note, S-O-A-P. And that is subjective, objective assessment and plan. So subjective is if you come in and ask me what what's wrong with me, I will tell you. I have this pain. It's been going on since last night. Um, that's subjective. Objective is you'll then do an exam on me and you'll find out my heart is racing or my pulse, my blood pressure is high. And then assessment is your diagnosis. And the plan is what test you're going to run. So this is this massive day that they have to spend. And the medical schools all across the nation will run mock-ups of those programs. But then once they started doing that, they realized there were other ways of using these standardized patients uh, in the day-to-day teaching. And that starts from the very first year. When students are learning to walk through the door and introduce themselves and take an interview uh, all the way up, well, we, we go way past that. But through their entire career in medical school, they'll see a standardized patient probably seven or eight times. Uh, it's been, become a big part of the school's uh, that's awesome. It's honestly amazing that it wasn't a big thing until about 12 years ago. That's it. like now learning about it. I, it makes so much sense that you would have to have that. And the, the concept of just being a new doctor or a new nurse or whatever, going out into the world and treating patients without having had some like practice runs before is, is unthinkable. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. The last place you want to make a major error is with a real person. Um, that can be made with us, even fatal errors. I've done cases where if the student walks out and leaves me there, in real life, I would die of an aneurysm. Um, and the they'll go to their assessor at the end of a, a program like that and will be told, you just left that patient in a room. And in a real situation, that patient would have died. Um, so they they they. It's a low-stakes situation when you're dealing with an actor and a standardized patient. Much higher stakes when you're dealing with a real person who may be having uh, an aortic aneurysm or an, uh, something that's really critical. The other thing we work with is, is breaking bad news, something you definitely don't want to do the first time with a real person. Uh, 
We handle difficult patients. Uh, we also teach the invasive exams. For the male, it's the genital prostate exam. For the female, it's the breast pelvic. Not something you want to do for the first time on a real person. You want to kind of do it on uh, someone in a controlled situation and definitely not something you're going to get a true a sensation for by doing it on a plastic model. So that's where we've also come in. Oh, uh, man. I cannot wait to learn more about this, Ariel. So we're going <laughs> to we're gonna put a pin in that for a second and come back yeah. to that in a little bit. And first of all, I just want to say I, I, I'm really happy to learn what you were saying about the whole entire soap thing that the doctors have to do, that one of the things is subjective. Because I feel like due to... Uh, I don't know, like runaway litigation in this country and like the potential for lawsuits that whether it's a doctor or or a company, like so many people in the professional realm are unable to just give their own opinion on anything anymore. And it's so frustrating, like when you just want somebody to to like level with you for a second and give you their own opinion about what they're seeing and people don't want to do that you know it's like oh well this is what my company kind of says i should say about this or this is what this book says and it's like i don't care what the book says like i want to know what you think really quick and people seem to be afraid to do that nowadays so it's nice that at least in medical school they're still teaching doctors to kind of think for themselves and to try to have a subjective um, assessment of what's happening a large part of what we do is the communication skills and that that ability to be a human being in the room with your patient instead of just a, a problem solver. Um, I like to think of it in terms of your, there are two reasons to do an interview with a patient, obviously to find out what's wrong with them, but also to get to know them. Because if I feel comfortable with you and feel like you as my physician or medical professional want to get to know me and my life outside of the exam room, I'm going to be more forthcoming with information. Um, if you come in and establish a situation that I'm the doctor, I'm going to ask questions, you're going to answer questions, sort of the interrogation mode. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to answer the questions. Yes, no, scale of one to 10, it's an eight. Uh, but if you get me in a conversation, then I may sit back and tell you, you know, I've had this thing today. I had it a few years ago. I treated it with Maalox or something from the drugstore. You're going to get a wealth of information if I feel comfortable talking to you. If I'm just answering your questions and you don't ask all the necessary questions, you might miss pertinent information. And the other thing with that is when you get into sensitive areas, uh, the social history, smoking, drinking, sexual history, things like that. I might not tell you anything. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah, there's so many diseases that we have that there is some sort of shame tied to, whether that be um, obesity or, like you said, sexual history, smoking, this or that, that if you don't feel really comfortable with that person, you're just going to put a wall up and be like, no, I haven't been smoking cigarettes. I don't know what's going on. Exactly. Exactly. So that's one of the first things when we assess, that's the first thing we fill out is an assessment on the communication skills. Were we greeted? Did we feel like there was empathy? Did we feel like uh, they, were they asking questions too quickly? How, even personal space, did they sit too close or did they sit too far away? Did they stand at the door? Did they sit? Did they stand? You know, various things. And it's amazing. There's no... There's no policy on that, and it go, each time a standardized patient will assess on how they felt in that particular situation. So it can be confusing for a, 
a student to go in one room and sit in the place and have a, a patient say, oh, you sat way, way too close to me. And then in the next room, they say, you sat so far away and they haven't changed a thing. So what we stress to the students is that it's not a tally. You're not keeping a tally. It's whatever you think applies to you. And you make that choice. You you go through these numerous encounters. And from that, you decide what your communication skills are going to be like. In some instances, we still we also uh, assess the exam skills, how well they did the various exams. But our primary function, the thing that because that can be assessed by someone behind a glass or on a camera. Um, the thing they can't assess is the communication skills because i've even watched on camera uh uh, someone doing a a an exam and they will rank the student very high as being personable and considerate and empathetic and i can't see it on a camera because of the distance of the camera Mm, interesting and you really have to be in the room and be that human in the room to uh to have an accurate assessment of how you felt so let's talk more about what you do, Errol. So you obviously we've talked a lot about bedside manner and stuff yeah. like that. Let's talk a little bit about diagnosing diseases and how you can help a physician with that. Uh, like, where do you get your medical background and your medical knowledge from to help a physician diagnose a disease? It's all done on the fly. I started this twelve years ago with no knowledge of medicine or uh, exam skills or anything. When you go into a standardized patient program and you're hired, you'll probably go through an orientation, and that's primarily on how to give feedback. Then each time, the way a a normal standardized patient goes, and there's so many variations, is that I'll be given a case to study. Uh, It's usually about two pages. And I am sent that in the email. A few weeks later or a few days later, I'll meet with an instructor and they will go through the case, the details on the case. And from that point, if there is a physical exam, they'll also go through the physical exam. That's where you learn your exam skills. It's literally on the fly. Then you, uh, it's up to you to learn your case. You come in. On the day of the encounters, you go into an exam room and a student knocks on the door. They usually come in for 10 or 15 minutes, do an interview, get a history, sometimes do a physical exam. They leave the room. Sometimes you do uh, computer feedback. You go to a computer and fill out a checklist, put comments in. Occasionally, the student will come back in the room and you will talk to them and give verbal feedback. They leave the room. Five minutes later, another student comes in, and you do that all day. You'll see eight to 12 students. Um, hardest part is keeping your mind straight, clearing it each time. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, the, the students can be so diverse, and you still can get them get them confused. And are you supposed to be the same patient throughout the whole you're day, the, or you have different stories throughout the day? Great, great question. In most cases, you're the same patient every day. Um I have done instances where I will go in a room with four students to teach basic communication skills, and I will be a different patient for each one of those students while I'm sitting there. Uh, Schools are getting away from that because it's a little harder for the students to to clear that and look at you as a different patient. Uh, But usually you're, you're portraying one case. The variations on that are I will go in front of a room to teach Breaking Bad News or 
beginning communication skills to a group of maybe eight students. And it'll be more of a lecture and role play with one student at a time taking a portion of the interview, but with the ability to say time out and get get a lifeline from the audience. Um, and they learn that way. I have done situations where two students have come in the room. One has done the history and exam and the other one has watched. I have done situations where I've been just a model, <laughs> where an instructor, uh, an instructor is talking about an interview and will do an interview in front of a class of 100 students or do an exam in front of 100 students. So there's a huge variety, but the core is that one-on-one, and it is either, it's almost always videotaped. Sometimes somebody sits behind a two-way glass who will be assessing what they're watching. And our role is primarily to communicate the communication skills and some of the exam skills. I know if a student has put the stethoscope in the correct positions on my chest, someone watching on a camera probably can't tell, but I can tell by the feel of it. Ah, Yeah, good point. So we know, and the the big boy of all the exams is called the head to toe. Uh, It's done at the end of the year for second years or third years, I believe. And it's a 140-item list for most schools or somewhere around that. And it literally starts at the head and goes to the toe. Uh, there are exam skills that we have to know uh, the the correct way of doing, and we assess on the things that were done correctly, the things that were done incorrectly. It sounds like it would be overpowering, but the students are fairly good. All you have to remember are the things that were done incorrectly. Uh So you can give feedback at the end of it, and you hope and pray that they only do six or seven incorrectly. Errol, how for the for the typical days, if you want to call it that, when you're just seeing like ten to twelve medical students or ten to twelve residents like back to back for a one on one, how long are these days for you? They're probably six to eight hours. Uh, They're good. They're usually a short break after a few patients, uh, a few students, a lunch break, and a few breaks. There was a study, and I don't have any idea where this was, but the accuracy of a standardized patient is very important. It usually is checked by the schools. You fill out your, your form, and then someone will watch that video, and they will see how accurately you uh, were able to assess. And it's Acknowledge that you don't have to be 100%. We're human beings, and so it's not a high-pressure thing. And it's rarely even pointed out to you unless you're really at a critically low level of assessment. But most of us stay around like the 98% level. But if you go more than four students without a break, I think the the, the accuracy level plummets to like 86 or something like that. Just yeah, totally point, makes sense. You can't differentiate anymore. You cannot remember whether that last person did your blood pressure or not, unless there was something very specific. But a break after about four, you refresh, you regroup, you clear your mind, and uh, you're ready for another four people. So you can probably get through 16 and be very accurate as long as there are those breaks about every four people. And what's the regularity of work, Errol? So are you like a 
a contract employee? Do you work with a company? Like, how, how is this all set up? Are you able to do this job? If somebody wanted to do this job, uh, you know, five days a week, 40 hours a week, can they do that? Or is it not that type of job? You can do it. I did it for eight years. I worked at 12 different medical schools, plus some independent contractors. Each medical school, if they have a large enough program, hires their own independent standardized patients. So you basically need to be like a 1099 independent contractor employee and go out and sign up with these different medical schools. Exactly. Exactly. My first year, the way I know about it is that I was in uh, corporate travel as a supervisor uh, that I just walked away from. I couldn't stand it anymore. And I was curious as to if this could give me enough income. So what I did was put all of my standardized patient checks into savings and every month or every week or two weeks, I would move savings to checking in the amount that I would have been making as a supervisor in the agency, travel agency. Just curious. At the end of the year, I had an excess of $3,000. Not a huge excess, but doing this, I made as much more than I made in the the, uh, agency. Now, I don't have any benefits, so I had to provide all that. But I also had the freedom. I have total freedom to say yes or no to any um, time. So if I need a week off, um, my mother dealt with Alzheimer's for a couple of years, and she was in Mississippi. It meant going home every month for four days to a week. I could never have done that with a real job. Not that this isn't a real job, but a regular nine to five. I would have used up all my vacation. I would have used up everything. And with this, I just scheduled around. So I had my long weekends or weeks off where I needed to have them. If you you know want a job that's flexible and you're willing to deal with the insanity of scheduling, because it really is um, – some schools do morning things, some do afternoon. Some how do does that e- work? Do they like post them online and you just click on it? Like, yep, I'll do that one. Or, or like, how do you they, get set you up? Get, you go to the school, you interview or audition, however you, however they do it, and you get on their list and you go through a basic orientation training. And then they, when they get a demographic that matches you, uh, age, gender, race, uh, they'll send out a mass email saying, here's a doodle poll. Here's when we need people for training. Here's when we need people for the, the exams. And you just say, yeah, I want that. I want that. I want that. And uh, then they'll send back the case and say, you're on it. And only in an instance where you start saying no a lot to schools, will they start using you less. But they're used to dealing with actors. They're used to dealing with, they know they're a part-time job. Um, so if you don't say yes to everything, they're not going to knock you off the list. It's just if you go six months of saying no, they may contact you and ask, you know, is there a reason? Are you still interested in working? Uh, so there's there's plenty of work out there. People, Everybody I know as a standardized patient are working as much as they want to work with the, the caveat that there are downtimes. Summers, November, December, kind of slow. Um, spring breaks, it kind of slows down a little, but the other times of the year, a lot of times I am saying no to jobs because I'm already booked somewhere else and I'm only working five schools now and I'm having that. So let's get back to the, uh, the day to day of the job uh, a little bit here. So are you supposed to sometimes like purposely try to be a difficult patient and does info like that get sent to you in that packet ahead of time? 
No, you'd be hired for difficult patients um, or for breaking bad news. Both are sort of the same category uh, because they are extremely stressful for the students and uh, very high ticket in terms of you want them to get this because all of the cases we do, as far as I understand, that our difficult patients are based on real life situations. And uh, so it's not just, hey, let's come up with something really bizarre to to make these students' lives miserable. They really are things that people have encountered. That Some of them are very simple things, like having a parent or a child, a parent or a a child in the case of an older person in the room uh, and that child or parent, the patient themselves is doing drugs or is smoking or is having sex. And they're not going to reveal that as long as mom is in the room or if I'm an older individual, as long as my son is in the room. So they've got to come up with a diplomatic way to get that person out of the room. Yeah. Or, they may encounter a family, a, a group of four people with uh, a relative on life support. And there is a total difference of opinion over to whether to, to unhook life support or not. They may get a benefactor to the college who is just uh, in sense that he's having to see a student and is going to not endow the college with a million dollars next year because they have not let him see a doctor. They could be a resident who was offended by something the student said in the hall to a patient. It it can run the gamut. And in breaking bad news, of course, it runs the gamut from uh, telling somebody that they, they are on a, uh, they have AIDS and we have depleted all of the possibilities and or that it is a uh, Parkinson's disease or it is something that's going to be terminal all the way to the point of something where a patient has been misdiagnosed or people haven't been giving the true story. The patient thinks they've got months to live and in reality they've got about a week and they've got to be the ones to make that change and also deal with anger of the patient saying, why didn't somebody tell me this sooner? So the difficult when the difficult cases are... Uh, very specific. I will say that there are a number of backgrounds that can do this work. Educators, um, people who've been in the medical field before, but there are some things, psych cases, breaking bad news, uh, and difficult patients that the actors has a leg up on it because it does require really throwing yourself into the role. I can only imagine. Yeah. Like, if, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're supposed to be having an emotional breakdown or something like that, yeah, just the fact that you used to be in the medical field is probably not going to help you have a breakdown in front of these people. Right. And sometimes having that background in the medical field is too much information. Schools, even though it sounds like you would think that every school and everything they're teaching these students is the same, it's vastly different. Different schools teach different techniques for almost every exam skill. Um, And so just as I don't go from school A to school B and in assessing someone saying, oh, you did great on this. But here, let me tell you how they did it at school A. Um, That's a major no-no. So if I'm a medical professional and I come into this program, I've got to forget everything I know because I don't want to be the one to say to a student, Hey, that was great, but I've got this way that uh, I do this that's better. 
they already get that. When they go on rounds or when they, uh, mainly on their rounds, they are under attendings and physicians who are telling them, oh, you're learning it that way in school? Uh, you don't have to do that. We don't need to do that. Um, and that's, here's a better way of doing it. But that's not what they're getting assessed on. So they don't need a standardized patient saying, here are other ways of doing this. I know probably three ways of doing almost every exam there is. And uh, that's, the, I guess, one of the hardest parts is when I pick up a case is review. The communication skills are easy, but the exam skills are remembering, is this one where they listen to the heart in four places with the bell or just two places? Is this a place where they have me turn on my side to listen to my heart? Is this a place where they have me lean forward? And of course, that's all in the training material. So it's not a not a huge thing, but it is something that you constantly have to stay on top of. Man, this is all so, <laughs> so interesting. So let's talk about some of the more invasive procedures. <laughs> when, when you and I were talking about that earlier, I, I immediately kind of assumed, okay, it's got to be the type of thing where it's all fake and that they don't actually do anything. But it sounds like maybe they actually they do something. Actually, like how how far do you go in these invasive procedures? We go, we go all the way. Um, I, um, uh, I've always said I took a couple of cruises on prostate exams. Uh, the male, the female is a breast pelvic. It's always team taught, uh, which means there are two SPs in the room. There is an instructor who will talk through the exam first. And then each student, it's usually done in groups of three or four. Each student does the exam. Um and that's by the guidance of a patient instructor or a standardized patient who's in a gown, is wearing nothing under the gown, and the, the exam is actually performed. With the female exam, uh, there's a full pelvic exam with speculum and everything. With the male exam, it's a testicular exam, and then they do a prostate exam. And people think it's, it's, that must be horrible. But the way we teach these exams is we teach them so that I can literally go through an evening of those exams, which could be eight or 12 exams, which to the general public must sound horrible. And I don't <laughs> feel any worse or any different from the first exam because the way we teach it is to ensure the patient's comfort. It's not my favorite thing to do. It's not something I would do on a day off, but it is, it's a very valuable exam because in an hour that the students are in here, you see them go from absolute terror to absolute confidence that they can do this. Their biggest fear is they're going to hurt you. And once they know they're not going to hurt you, uh, they're completely, and I won't say completely at ease with it, but once they've done the exam once, they believe they can do it again. And so it is, it is, you're there, uh, you're in a gown. Men, male exam, we sometimes team teach. Uh, we sometimes uh, solo teach. So if I'm solo teaching, I'm in my gown, I'm talking them through the exam, and uh, then the first person volunteers, they sit on the stool, raise the gown, and they do the exam, and I, we guide them step by step. Uh, obviously, team teaching is a little better when you get to the prostate because you can't see what's going on. Uh, but they kind of police each other, too. There's the other three students are standing back there. We also do part of what we teach in those exams is education. So in the female exam, they 
asked the question, do you do monthly self-testicular, uh, no, breast exams with the male exam they do, uh, they ask, do you uh, do monthly testicular exams? And a big part of what we teach is the phrasing and the wording. Um, so they have to get that down. We teach them not to use the terms feel, touch, or look at. I'm not going to look at your your penis. I'm not going to touch your testicles. I'm going to inspect, check, or examine ICE. Those are non-threatening terms. Um, so a big part of it is doing the exam, but also the big part is how do you talk a patient through that exam so they don't feel uncomfortable? How, so how uncomfortable were you and how nervous were you the first time that you were ever going to do one of those? I tell you, I got thrown into it with little training whatsoever. I was at a school where they had somebody not show up and they literally said, do you want to do these? And these do pay very, very well that they should. Uh, and I said, uh, yeah, I've been wanting to do them. And they said, someone didn't show up. There actually will be a doctor in the room talking them through this exam, which they sometimes do. So I went in a room with an SP. He showed me what to expect from the doctor and the doctor did it. I'm sure there is some, uh, so I never had much time to, <laughs> to freak return. out, but I've trained other people. And as a standardized patient, when I train someone, I have to do the exam on them, which is a little weird and strange, but it also is, I guess that's the initiation period. It's having one of your peers go through this with you. But the big thing it breaks down is that, you know, this is okay. It's just an exam. It's just a body part. Um, that's what we teach the students is I'm going to do a genital exam uh, is the same as I'm going to do a uh, look in your ears. It doesn't, it shouldn't have any more uh, emotional baggage to it because if you layer that on the patient will but if the patient's in and you say i'm going to do a general exam raise your gown it's very conversational the patient will do it in most cases because they want to feel better they want to make sure that they're well um so yeah it is a strange way to make a living uh but we do want to work on the the communication skills because i've had students um say things like uh, I'm going to, uh, oh, and in talking to me about the self-testicular exam, what you're supposed to say is, do you do a monthly self-testicular exam? And you're supposed to do it while you are doing the exam on the patient, because that way you can explain how to do one while you're doing the exam. And I've had a, page, a student look up at me and say, so do you touch yourself every month? Well, that's not the <laughs> that shouldn't be the question. I also was co-teaching with a, a partner and they were about to skip the education portion, and they're doing the testicular exam. And I said, isn't there a question you want to ask your patient? And she looked up at me and said, so uh, where do you live? It's like, no, that's, that's not. <laughs> so they're very nervous. And, and once they get the wording down, you know, that's, that's the big thing. How do we talk about these things? Because to, to, it's not something you, you talk about in public. And the other thing about it is almost every exam other exam, except things within that area, they do on each other in medical school, heart exams, things like that. They get very used to that. But the genital region, obviously the prostate, they're not going to do on each other. There's some nodes in the groin area and the creases of the leg. They don't even do that. So we're the only ones that they get a chance to do this exam on before real people. All the other exams, they practice on boyfriends, they practice on family members, they can take blood pressures and things like that. So it is 
One of the reasons it's separated out is that they're a specialized group of people that do it. Very rewarding. And um, it is such a, a thrill to see these these people in one hour go from total terror. We've actually had people pass out in the room from fear <laughs> wow. to total confidence uh, that they could do this if they had to. Errol, uh, what is the pay like of a of the regular job? And then what is the pay like for the invasive part of the job like that? The regular pay for training generally is about 16. Uh, and I don't know some of these schools how where they go, but I would say about 16 to 25 dollars an hour, depending on if you are doing an exam portion and having to learn that head to toe exams would be. Probably about the same, but you're getting a lot of hours of training in on that. Most schools have a minimum of two or three hours of training. So even if your training just takes an hour, you'll get paid extra for it. Some schools pay travel time if they're way out. So there's some extras. The invasive, uh, it goes from, you know, it's usually quoted as a set price for the evening. So you can go in for an evening. Uh, see three rounds of students, 12 students, which is about three hours, two and a half, three hours. Pay on that is several hundred dollars. Um, and those generally happen in a string. There's a, a school that we go out for like four Saturdays in a row and we're there all day. So that in itself can be a, a over a thousand dollars for, you know, 18 hours of your time. Wow, that's crazy. So it's a real consideration because you're getting paid like five times as much money to, to right. do that. And I skipped the part of doing the actual exams. Those generally range from 20 to $35 an hour um, when you're actually in doing the exams. Okay. So you don't have to work a 40-hour week to make, you know, the what you would make at, at – a job, a, a you know, a basic level job at 40 hours a week, which gives you a lot of freedom. And those wonderful days of having off middle of the day in the middle of the week, things like that. Um, and just a good community. Every school I work for has this wonderful community. Every school has a different personality. Uh, but this wonderful community of people who are doing this. And I think everyone gets into it in the beginning because of the pay and the flexibility. I don't know anyone who is in it now who's done it for any length of time that isn't in it because you really enjoy being a part of making these students better doctors for the people. And when I tell people I do this, they say, oh my goodness, they need it because my doctor has no bedside manner. My not doctor leaves me sitting in the room. I never know when he's coming back. So, you know, every, every, every student that we can send out to be a better communicative doctor Man, that that helps me because I'm going to go to those guys someday. And I've actually had students have said, when you get out, I'm coming to you because you're so good. And most of them are. Most of them really develop. That's the other joy in, in staying in a school and seeing these students over the years. The programs work very hard not to let you see them too frequently. But you do, over the years, see them over and over. And it's so nice to see them develop and become their own, become a doctor from being a scared student in the very beginning. Yeah, that's really cool, man. That is really cool. Um, let's let's uh, wind this thing down, Errol. What sort of advice would you give people if they wanted to try to become a standardized patient? This sounds like a pretty awesome job. Like, what, uh, what, what advice would you give? I would say 
research it, find the schools. Every major city uh, has medical schools and every major medical school has something, some type of standardized patient program. It may hide under clinical education. It may hide under um, clinical skills study. It's easy enough to, to hunt down. It may not always be on their webpage, but call the medical school and ask them about it. I also know if Chicago is any indication, this time of year, schools are looking for people. Summers are slow, but this is the time of year that they're starting to staff and get ready for the uh, fall. I've already had a notification from Northwestern looking for a minority uh, demographics. And really, the only thing you need in terms of experience is a desire and the ability. And this is why actors work well, educators work well, the ability to sit through an encounter and run it and be, your, be that patient in the encounter. But at the same time, split your mind to assess what's going on. Actors do it all the time. We go on stage and we're doing a role, but we also have this other half of our brain saying, oh my goodness, that door didn't close. What do I do? Or she dropped that that pencil. I've got to get to it. There's an outside thing assessing everything. And at the worst, it's that voice in our head at the end of the night where we say, oh, that was a lousy. I did so lousy. <laughs> um, the, the same is true with your student. You're going through an encounter with your student. And at the end, you're going to have to sit down and say, Here's what I observed. This is what happened. This is how it made me feel. Educators are good at that too. So research, find out. This is a there. Standardized patients have a national organization. So I know this to be true. That every major city uh, has a program like this. Or if you're near a major city and you're interested in doing it, very rewarding work. What do you need in terms of skills? Just the desire, because basically. It's an on-the-job training. You will learn the communication skills through their orientation. You will learn the exam skills as you move up through that. And uh, the same is true if you're interested in the invasive exams. Um, the schools on that a lot of time contract out. But going through a medical school's education program, um, clinical education, they'll know who does those type of exams. And those two, you can, believe me, on those, you get full training. And uh, and th before you go into the, the exam room, in fact, one of the steps in it that I may have left out is before you go in and do an invasive exam, you go into the room with the students as a student and observe a couple before you're, you're put into it. Because you have to be fully aware of what's involved and have to be comfortable doing that. But we need people. I mean, there, there's always calls out for people. People trans decide not to do it or they move away or they get other jobs that don't allow them to do it. So there are always openings. I would say just if you're interested in doing it, um, if you can get my email address, which is my name at gmail.com, uh, and you're in the Chicago area and want access to the people, the individual people and locations uh, at the 12 schools that I know of, I'll be glad to pass it along. There's more than enough work. It's not a competitive field at all because uh, uh, we we all can pretty much work as much or as little as we want to. Awesome. Well, yeah, Errol, I'll put a link to uh, to your email address on the homepage and I'll do some Google searching and put up some other links as well on, that, on, uh, on your show notes on the half hour intern site right, so people right. can check it out. 
Um, Errol, thank you so much, man. This is so interesting. Like I said, I cannot believe I didn't know about this. It's, it's so interesting and so awesome. And it's really good to know that people like you are helping our physicians and other healthcare practitioners become better. Um, like you said, we all, we all have kind of had like an experience with a doctor that maybe wasn't the nicest. So it's great to have people helping out. So thank you. And, uh, thanks for all the info, man. This is great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show. Then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.